This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. When an unidentified plane crashes on the remote Hawaiian island of Nihau, the islanders have no idea that it's a Japanese Zero and that the pilot who survived the landing has just bombed Pearl Harbor. Only two people realize the significance of the downed soldier, convinced that Japan has successfully invaded the United States, and pressured by the desperate pilot, they face a growing dilemma. Are they loyal to America, their country, but one that has bruised them with prejudice, Or should they help the pilot, betraying their Hawaiian neighbors but saving themselves? Based on a little-known true event, East Wind Rain, Carolyn Paul's debut novel, tells the story of people thrust unwittingly into war. Paul is also the author of Fighting Fire, a 1998 memoir about becoming one of San Francisco's first women firefighters. Carolyn Paul, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. How are you today? What's the weather like up there in, in San Francisco? Oh, it's foggy as always. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, as, they, ha- as they say about San Francisco, uh, the coldest winter that's ever spent is a summer in San Francisco. Oh, yeah? yeah. Well, I've had some warm warm summers up there. I wouldn't say <laughs> that. I, there's some beautiful days. I remember, uh, although I remember spending the 4th of July there once and not being able to see any fireworks. They were just kind of... Uh, you could hear them. Yeah, <laughs> impressionistic <laughs> colors above the yeah. fog, yeah. So so what what inspired you? What, what, was there a point in time where you decided you needed to write this book, or was this something that just grew out of some research you were doing? Actually, it grew out of desperation. Because huh. uh, I had written my memoir in 1998, and I wanted to, and I pretty much said all I wanted to say about myself. <laughs> and I wanted to write fiction. And I wrote about five books, all of them, you know, half done, three-quarters done, and all of them terrible. (laughs) And someone told me this story, and I had never heard of it and was amazed because, of course, every writer wants a story that begins with a plane crash (laughs) and uh, and realized that it was a true story and that it had a beginning, middle, and end and that I had been good at that. Um, I knew how to write a true story. And um, so I I took it on, and the more I researched it, the more... um, the more fascinated I became with this event. Mm-hmm. Well, what does East Wind Rain mean, anyway? What's, what's the title? Well, I love the title. It's a beautiful title. Um, the East Wind is what it would take to get to Niihau, which is the westernmost Hawaiian island. That's what it would take to get to Niihau from civilization, which, of uh-huh. course, was very symbolic because Niihau is so isolated. Um, and also, it's very, very dry, even though it was um, only 16 miles from the wettest place on Earth, which is on, which is on Kauai, which gets 500 inches of rain. Niihau only gets 12. So I thought, wow, this is a great title, East Wind Rain. Mm. And then, but what, what I, what I, where I had seen these um, words was in uh, my research uh, under the Japanese Winds Code, which was the code that the Japanese used to signal their diplomats about which country they were going to actually be attacking in December because they didn't know. And if it was going to be Russia, they would send out a uh, code in their weather forecast, um, and it would say, hold on, I'm actually looking it up, because uh, north wind cloudy. And if in the weather forecast that came out of Tokyo, 
it said west wind clear, that meant that they were going to be attacking Britain. But if it said east wind rain, that meant they would uh, be attacking the United States. You mean the, the, and on December 4th, east wind rain came out of um, Tokyo at the end of the weather forecast. Just out of curiosity, the, the British, you, by that you mean they weren't going to attack Great Britain, the, but some part of the British Empire is what you Yeah, because yeah. they wanted um, the colonies in, uh, they, wanted, they needed all the resources in Southeast Asia. Right, so a Hong Kong and among them, I'm sure, would have been what they were, you were talking about. Exactly. Uh, okay, I'm uh, just curious. Th- this island is, is completely isolated, no electricity. Was there any way of communicating at all to this island, back and forth? Well, it was, it was privately owned by a very eccentric uh, family, and specifically a very eccentric man named Mr. Robinson. He was a very devout Christian, and he forbid any of the modern conveniences on this island. Um, that was basically a ranch that belonged to the family, and all the people that worked that ranch lived on the island hmm. and weren't allowed to have electricity or cars or phones. Anything that was on the other islands at the time, hmm. they couldn't have. And there was a sense that... Um, he was kind of trying to protect the innocence of these Hawaiian um, islanders. But, of course, one of the things that is so moving and tragic about the story is that that very isolation is what kind of doomed them, because in the wake of this plane crash, they really had no idea what was going on in the outside world and so made a lot of really bad decisions. And to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Carolyn Paul, and she's the author of East Wind Rain. Uh, is, is this... Is this a- Part of the story where two people do know about the pilot is that part true? Yeah. Uh, and 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 I just I love the circumstance or the setup there, and that that their choices between uh, I guess you'd say nationalism or 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 uh, race or origin. Uh, there. You know that wasn't really the that's that's what it looks like the uh-huh. setup is, and of course that's what people at the time thought that the setup would be. If you were of foreign enemy ancestry, as they said, mm-hmm. and your um, the country you were born in was at war with your, I guess what they call the mother country. But in fact, really, what happened on this island is that the Japanese American couple had so little information about what was going on in the outside world, and the pilot was pressuring them to help him. And they, even though they were born in, on Kauai, they were American citizens, Yoshio Harada had never been to Japan, um, they had suffered a lot of prejudice. And this is one of the things that surprised me in my research. I didn't realize how much prejudice Japanese Americans had encountered before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And so really this is not um, really about nationalism versus uh, um, you know, a mother country. It's it's really about the effects of prejudice, mm-hmm. and um, and ha- and 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 ultimately self preservation, which is what I why I think the Haradas made the decisions that they did. So so it was it was fairly easy then, I guess, based on the the prejudice that was already there, to to take the next step and have internment camps. Is that? A fair analysis? Or well, you know, interestingly enough, you know, I heard this story and I thought, wow, this is a really interesting small footnote to history. Um, but what I found out was that the events on Niihau, and they take place over seven days, was actually one of the major reasons why we interned Japanese Americans just a, a couple months later. What do you mean by that? Well, the, this the was served as a, as a sort of a, an object lesson for that or for that uh, to happen? Well, the, what the Haradas did on that island and the decisions that they made, because they decided eventually to help the yeah, pilot. Right. They felt like that was the only thing they 
could do. They felt that that was the best thing to do for everybody. Right. Because, of course, they thought the Japanese were coming. And um, so when um, the panic was on about Pearl Harbor, this incident of the Japanese-Americans helping um, somebody from Japan seemed to prove to President Roosevelt that, in fact, uh, people of foreign enemy ancestry were much more loyal to their ancestry than to their, um, you know, their, their actual home, which would be the United States. And, of course, I don't think that's true, but at the time... Um, uh, that I could see why people would think that if you didn't know a lot about Niihau and what happened, and right. of course a lot of people didn't. Right. So it really became kind of a springboard or a uh, what am I justification for yeah. the internment uh-huh. Wow. And it was a potent one. What would you describe the conditions uh, of a living of a Japanese American uh, living in uh, at that time before the attack, uh, as far as prejudice goes, just in general on main in mainland United States? Well, it's a, it's a good distinction, because in Hawaii, you know, uh, Japanese and Japanese-Americans made up one-third of the population. So while there was still, they were still quite treated distinctly, there wasn't as much prejudice as in California. I mean, in California, people were yelling about the yellow peril, mm-hmm. and had been for decades. And, um, you know, they, Japanese, uh, people of Japanese descent weren't allowed to sit in the same sections as whites in theaters. I mean, it was a lot like what was going on with um, the African-Americans at the time. Wow. Uh, um, the, the yellow peril. So that, that goes, well, I was, I was going to bring, bring something up about Hawaii, I'm sorry. Um, and that has Everybody. to do with the United States and the way that we took over Hawaii back around the ter- turn of the century. Did that have any ramifications for the kind of treatment that the Japanese and and how they felt about America? Did that? Well, yeah, I think it was emblematic of um, the way the mainland and really white Americans yeah. uh, viewed people um, of uh, certainly of Asian descent. You know, Hawaii became a territory in 1900, right. and it was mostly because of the illegal machinations of white businessmen in Hawaii who illegally overthrew the monarchy, and then. Right wanted to become a state of the United States, basically to get good tax um, write-offs on their products. That was the only reason. But at the time, you know, America wasn't sure they wanted um, islands that were full of, frankly, Asian people and, you know, native Hawaiians. They didn't think that that is what Americans should look like. And so, in fact, Hawaii didn't become a state in 1900. In fact, it didn't until 1959. It It was a territory. We're speaking with Carolyn Paul. She's the author of East Wind Rain. And I was wondering, in the story, the Zero crashes, but the uh, the pilot wants to, uh, I guess it crash lands. Uh, it's still intact in some way, but the pilot wants to destroy the plane. What was the reasoning behind that? Well, this is one of the major tragedies of the story, is mm-hmm. that the Japanese pilot who got hit um, with artillery fire after attacking of the airfields um, on uh, Oahu, had to make an emergency landing on Niihau. And he actually landed his plane quite well. And then he spends the next seven days intent on destroying it. Mm. And this seems just tragic, because if he had just crashed it in the ocean like he was really supposed to, um, none of this would have happened. But in fact, that's not what he does. And so he tries to enlist um, the help of the Haradas, really simply to destroy his plane so that it won't fall into enemy hands, which is what is really mandated as a Japanese soldier. It's the biggest shame for you or your equipment 
to fall into enemy hands. Mm. Was there any other reason besides the shame? Was there something on board the plane? Is there a... uh... You know, is there intelligence to be gathered on the plane? machines or something? Yeah, well, at the time, the Zero is a very, int- was a very interesting plane. I'm a pilot myself, so I'm a little interested in planes and certainly very interested in flying. Um, and uh, the Zero becomes kind of a character in the book because it's representative, of course, of the modern world, which kind of drops onto this um, isolated island um, that is trying to escape the modern world. Okay. But at the time, it was very mythological because it was the best fighter plane ever made. But it had a couple flaws. And one, of course, was that its gas tanks didn't seal, which is why he had to make his emergency landing once his gas tanks were hit. And the other one is that it didn't, didn't uh, fight well when turning to the, to the right. And so he didn't, want, I mean, he didn't want any of this information out. And so um, hmm. he wanted to destroy his plane and needed help. And we we do know. I mean, you obviously know that he 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 was he successfully was he was a part of the the raid on on Pearl Harbor. Did we have any idea what what he yeah. what he hit? I mean, is there any? Do we know any of the? Was there any any uh, success that he spoke of to the uh, the family there? Or was... That's not documented. But he actually was in the second wave, and he hit the airfields at Hickam and oh, okay. Wheeler, and. Okay. Um, he was a really successful pilot. He was only 21 years old, but he had 3,000 combat hours. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he, he should have ditched his plane in the ocean. <laughs> he I, should have. You know, at the time, there, were not, there was not any such thing as kamikazes, which uh, I think people, that, yeah. that didn't come about till 1945. But there was still, you know, a, a, a military doctrine that you, you never, you know, let yourself or your equipment I think that's pretty universal. I think even today, most most uh, soldiers are taught that uh, we can't let th- right. this stuff fall into enemy hands. So it's now, if I were if I were just living in mainstream America at that period of time, would oh, yeah. I have known at all about this incident at any point in well, time? Uh, you know, in the forties and during the the uh, it closely to... after the invasion or not the invasion. What am I talking about? The the bombing of Pearl. Well, Harbor? you can imagine that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was. So much news um, going on that this kind of got buried, and I think part of, uh, in fact, I know a lot of it, some of it was intentional because the Robinson family was very reclusive, and they still own the island today, mm. and they certainly didn't want this to come out. And the government at the time also didn't think it was that good a thing to to come out because they didn't want people to think that a pilot, an enemy pilot, could just land in their backyard. Mm. So in fact, this garners a couple sentences in Pearl Harbor books. But often, raw, a real, an incorrect or very contradictory, um, you know, telling of the story. But didn't you say earlier that Roosevelt looked at this incident as evidence of the complicity? Oh yeah, well of course the military was very interested in this event yeah. for a lot of reasons. So That's... yeah, of course the the government knew all about it. But in terms of the general public, yeah. I, mean, I think it really got lost. Yeah. Did you speak at all to the Robinson family about you know, doing your research on this book? You know, I contacted them because I wanted to get on the island, see the island, because mm-hmm. even though this is a novel, I, I, it's such an important event, I want it to be, um, stick as closely to the truth as possible. And so I did call and I did write a letter, but they didn't answer, which uh-huh. is typical. They're still very, but you cannot get on that island. Um, you can do some kind of tourist thing and land on a far-off promontory, but you cannot interact with the Hawaiians still to this day. Wow. Do they, uh, the Robinsons, uh, any, have any anyone have any idea what what they're doing these days I, they're they're still they were, farming right? yeah I, uh, they uh, they as isolated and secretive as it seems that they were back then or 
Do they they have? Are there still a lot of uh, Japanese Americans on the island that work for them? No, you know, at the time there was only um, one Japanese American couple, and, and Yoshio Harada was brought on because he was a good beekeeper. Uh, mm. And Robinson really liked bees, and the raising of bees was done on that island. Mm-hmm. And there was also a Japanese national who'd been there since 1900. And he had married a Niihau, and so had become quite Niihau, but of course never fully. Because as um, I think as unprejudiced the Niihauans were in terms of your, you know, whether you were Japanese or not, they were, they were still very much about being Niihauan, so you could never quite become Niihauan. Um, but he had married a Niihau woman who then, of course, had to give up her American citizenship because that's what you had to do if you had married, married someone who was Japanese at the time. So, in fact, there were only, um, out of the 130 villagers, there was um, the Haradas and then Shintani. And then um, after that, there was really only descendants of the Shintani, but otherwise it's really a Hawaiian island. I'm going to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Carolyn Paul, and she's the author of East Wind Rain. And i got to tell you, this is, a, this is a very cinematic story. Have you been approached? Or are you looking? Has anyone talked to you about a, a film for, from this story? Or? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, every book is it's, <laughs> a film. And of it's course, there's a plane crash, and there's, um, you know, yeah. Hawaiian rituals and yeah. fights. And, it just so. has a, some great elements of sort of a, yeah. Well, it's a very American story, yeah. and it really is about identity and, you know, and who we are as a country. And, um, you know, where our loyalties lie, not just to our country, but to our neighbors. Right. And... Um, and I think it's it's very, you know, very timely. And uh, the island is so bizarre because yeah. it's just so isolated, Isolate. and that that and it still is, um, you know, today. Yeah, no, it just it's, it sounds very cinematic to me. How, how would you draw the parallels today? I mean, just uh, between the, that kind of loyalty, where, where do you where do you think? Uh, give us an example of somebody who would fall into the same category right now. Are we all facing that? Well, uh, I, I, really, I was really struck by this really conscious effort to isolate the island, to keep it safe uh-huh. from, um, you know, modern evils. And, of course, he couldn't do that. Robinson couldn't do that. This plane fell from the sky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I think that we are, we are trying to erect a lot of fences now, and we're trying to... Um, you know, put up a lot of barriers now to the outside world. Um, and I'm not sure that's the way to um, keep us American. I think that that's ripe for trouble because everything can be breached. You know, we need to be pretty thoughtful and almost, I don't know, I, I think it's a lesson. Um, there's, a, there's a definite lesson. And, you know, today we're still trying to figure out what it means to be American mm-hmm. with our, you know, with our you know, confusion uh, about our immigration policy and you know, who should be let in and who should become a citizen and why. Yes. It, it, really, it really is no. the, the question of the last half, of the last uh, 10 years, certainly, yeah. of, the, of our country. I'm, so. I'm just going to switch gears here because uh, I, I'm curious about your, uh, your tenure at, was it KPFA, in, uh, where you covered the, the story for your first book, uh, Fighting Fire? Yeah, yeah, I was, um, you know, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I went to Stanford and mm-hmm. studied to be um, some sort of journalist and thought I would go into filmmaking um, because it had, you know, I mean, I, I guess because people watched films. And I went into ra- radio uh, here, Pacifica Radio, to try to get a sense of how to tell a good story truthfully. But I found I wasn't a good good reporter at all, oh. so, which is why I became a writer. Oh. 
were you were looking into discrimination within the police within the fire department, and then ended up proving the the premise of the story wrong. Is that right? That well, <laughs> I was doing a story um, on at the time the San Francisco Fire Department was just facing a lot of troubles. They were trying to integrate with women and people of color. They were under uh, affirmative action mandates, and there was just a hard time. And so I ripped the story and thought. Oh, I, I think I'm going to go undercover. This is right here in my hometown, and uh-huh. see and write a story about how racist and sexist the San Francisco Fire Department uh, is. And I went um, and took the test, thinking that my tires would be slashed or someone would whisper bad things to me. <laughs> of course, none of that happened because that's, first of all, just not the way prejudice often presents itself. And secondly, that's just too black and white. You know, uh-huh. it was not a terrible institution by any means. And by the time I'd gotten through the process trying to do this story, I'd actually gotten in. And by then I'd kind of fallen for the idea of being a firefighter, and I was one for 13 years, and it was fantastic. And I I love the San Francisco Fire Department and what it did for me as a person. (laughs) I mean, I went in there trying to write a story about how it should change, and in fact, (laughs) I was the one who should change. That's a nice experience to have before you write this book, too, I would assume. It it opens you up, I know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, very true. Being a firefighter is, um, you know, you really develop um, a real wonder at how um, things can change so suddenly for us. I mean, obviously, I was called to, um, you know, car accidents and fires where people's lives were going along fine, and then suddenly Mm -hmm. one small misstep and everything's changed. And I think that's what happens in this book. Yeah. Let me let me ask you. Uh, I noticed on your website that you've done you had done some readings back in in May in Hawaii, on the book. What was what was the reaction? Yeah, I was really nervous about um, the reaction that the Hawaiians people lived on Hawaii would have, especially the Haole Hawaiians. Really, mm-hmm. um, they they feel seem to be very proprietary of their history, which you know I can I can kind of understand. Um, though they had kind of appropriated Hawaiian history mm-hmm. themselves. So, and I'm just a white girl from Connecticut. I mean, I'm not anybody in this book, and I'm certainly not from Hawaii. And so it was, um, I was nervous, and it was also really important to me because I wanted to respect uh, everybody in this book. Yeah. And, I w- and they actually um, embraced me and the book and basically said, it's about time the story was written. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Oh, very nice. Well, I want to. Are you planning on being in the Southern California area for any readings? Um, you know, my actually my book tour is kind of winding down. Okay. But I did just get reviewed in the New York Times very nicely, oh, and so um, who knows what could happen <laughs> after that? Well, we hope you come down here. If you do, let us know. We'll we'll alert uh, our listeners to uh, to your coming here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you very much for being a part of Weekly Signals, Carolyn Paul. The the book is East Wind Rain. Uh, terrific book. Um, urge you to check it out, and uh, thanks for being on. Thank you. Take Bye. Care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.